What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Doing that, I was face-to-face with it. It was holding me by my throat, and it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old. And at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person. I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. Welcome. I'm your host. And this is Uncomfortable. Welcome back to the show, my friends. I am your host. Eric Salagi. If you've had an uncomfortable experience and you'd like to have it featured on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. Most importantly, please share the show with others and make sure to leave us a five star rating and review where you can. This is the main way that you can help get the show out in front of other people. And with more people listening, That means more people coming forward with great stories for you. There's a couple of events coming up I'm going to be a part of. First first part is Bigfoot and Bruce 2 being held September 9th in Dowajak, Michigan. This September 9th, Robert Kreider from New Mexico and Mr. Stacy Brown Jr. from Florida will be the main speakers. Tickets are available. Seating is limited. So if you're interested, I would suggest picking up those tickets as soon as you can. I want to let you know that the Friday night before, at the same venue, we will be holding a VIP dinner. Those tickets are also available on the website. Um, Stacy Brown Jr. is offered to give us a screening of his latest installment of the Skunk Ape Experiment. Both gentlemen will be on hand for the dinner and for the viewing of his newest project. Tickets are on sale now. Again, I'm looking for vendors, so if that interests you, please check out the vendor's ticket on the Eventbrite link and the show notes. Um, Also, if you are interested in helping sponsor the event, please contact me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. We've secured a block of rooms at the Quality Inn and Suites in Niles, Michigan for September 8th and 9th at $120 per night. And that includes two queen beds. The Quality Inn is a short 28-minute drive south 
of the Sister Lake Brewing Company where the event's being held. Information for the Quality Inn will also be in the show notes below. Please reference Bigfoot and Brews for the discount in the uh, room rate. Just about a month later, uh, October 6th, 7th, and 8th, we are going to be in Edo, Ohio. You will be able to, for $50, get to spend the weekend. That'll be a Friday night, all day Saturday, and Sunday morning breakfast with Justin and Jay from the Cryptids of the Corn, Steve and Kyle from the Hollow Sky Podcast, Chris and Joel from Akilla Mockingbirds Podcast, Ryan, Justin, and Lance from the Appalachian Intelligence Podcast, and Bo Kennedy from the Bump Podcast, as well as me, yours truly, for the Fortian Airwaves Podcast Conference. Again, that's 50 bucks is the cost of that ticket, and that gets you access to us for three days. It's going to start with an evening uh, impromptu meet and greet on Friday evening there in Ada, and then Saturday all day, you're going to have about an hour with each show going up on stage doing their thing. We'll have vendors tables there where you can purchase your T-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, whatever merch that you want to get from your favorite podcast there. Um, <clears throat> other than that, I think, oh, also, I want to let you know that the Uncomfortable website is now up. You can go to www.uncomfortable-pod.com, and that is the new home for Uncomfortable Podcast. So all the information for Bigfoot and Brews is there. The information for Fortian Airwaves will be there soon. So check it out. Also, head over to Patreon if you want to help support the show. Tonight's guest has been with us couple of times already and when you see his name you're gonna think oh boy we're gonna be talking about Bigfoot and that's typically correct but not tonight tonight we're gonna be talking to some something a little bit more otherworldly something a little bit more clandestine and some things that might just involve the majestic 12 and some paperwork that Mr. Kreider had been entrusted with by a gentleman years ago, one of a few people that were entrusted with these documents in the event that something happened to them. They were told to release this paperwork at a specific time. So if you're ready to get into it, let's do this. gentlemen please welcome mr writer mr <laughs> mr writer mr robert Kreider. <laughs> i just shortened your name for you you're now a writer <laughs> oh in a rental truck company now uh <laughs> how are you guys doing this evening and uh thank you for having me eric hey thanks for being back with us man it's always a pleasure mm-hmm. having you always a pleasure so now everybody should know, I guess, um, we haven't really gone over what we were going to talk about. So it's uh, not anything at all. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's off the cuff and I love that. So yeah. go for it, whatever, 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 wherever you want to take it. I think, I think that this makes for a much more, um, 
a much more inter- interesting conversation uh, when, when, when you don't have any background or anything. Um, well, I'm ready. I, I, I do know a little bit. You know, I, I do know from a previous conversation that you were one of a handful of people that were entrusted with uh, some documents. And if I remember correctly, that you guys were all supposed to hold on to these things kind of as an insurance policy um, mm-hmm. against this gentleman's life. And they go back to what, mid 1980s, correct? 1984, 1985? Well, 88. 88? Actually. Okay. Yeah. So as everything started kind of being compiled in 87, and then um, they were formatted to be released to certain individuals in 1988. Okay. So I, I think the, first of all, the, the timing of, of this is uh, impeccable. Uh, based mm-hmm. on, you know, what we're going through right now, which is <clears throat> many call it a disclosure. I call it at best a soft disclosure, um, mm-hmm. and and even more so, almost a uh, maybe not a completely honest disclosure. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of very interesting stuff in the news lately. You got the David Crush uh, testimonies. You've got the, the the Senate committees. You've got the congressional uh, testimonies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I've I've never. I, th- I think the most the most credible gentleman that I have seen come forward about this has been commander fravor um but what's what's strange about commander fravor and his uh his tic-tac experience is that whenever he's talked whenever he's asked about whether or not he had any kind of a debriefing that he was told you're never to talk about this you never you know no disclosure Mm -hmm. no nothing he says, nobody ever talked to me. You know, we had a, a normal debriefing, but I was never told not to talk about it. I was never told anything. I've never been threatened. I've never f- felt that my, uh, my, my person was, uh, you know, being threatened whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, then you have all these other people who throughout much of modern history have reported having all kinds of problems with wanting to come forward to talk about this stuff. So mm-hmm. there, that to me, even though I, I, I fully buy into his, his story and, and, and the accounts of what happened and the, and the wing that he was with, um, there's something strange about there not being any, you better not talk or else when it comes to him. Well, it's interesting when we hear all of this in, in, in one bucket, and then what we're now seeing is pulling pieces out of a bucket. And we have to remember that, that all these pieces didn't just jump in the bucket by themselves. There's a reason that these conduits are opening, that these guys are doing this. And it's multifaceted. But really, you can imagine if you were to put something in a balloon or in a bubble of information, which is what they did to it, right? They encapsulated it and then they control the perimeter and who gets to see what. So we never see inside the bubble. Um, eventually the bubble will get enough pressure because of whichever and, and the internet and people learning and seeing that the bubble bursts. Well, we often think that, wow, it's out and now it's in the air and it's just open. But really 
you can imagine that anyone with any intellect would already have a retaining wall outside in case the bubble bursts. So when you know it's something that dangerous, like a nuclear reactor, you have the pool and the rods and everything's fine until something goes wrong. And then they build this huge building in an outer distance away from it that's thick that's supposed to contain that problem. Right. And then naturally they have a plan if that building goes down for a larger containment area, like, you know, they won't zone businesses within a certain distance or whatever that might be. Well, we have to see this in the same way. So as information comes to light, a bubble gets burst in this case. Um, they have a lot of room before the next containment wall to absorb this impact and a lot of time to lessen its blow. And so you can imagine you'd be putting things to disrupt and to scatter and to focus where you want to. What if it's floodwater? Same thing. They put up, you know, concrete pillars one after one after one inside the flow zone, and then they channel it where they want to channel it. Well, you can imagine the same things being happening. As the dam breaks, proverbial dam breaks, and the information flows over the dam, well, it's being managed and controlled on its way down the valley. Um, that's why you don't see it just go wham all of a sudden and have, you know, three or four of the top companies just being publicly uh, mentioned who are the holders of the tech. Or really, they're not even describing why and how and what, you know, like when they talk about compartmentalized, people think, oh, well, that's within the government. Well, no, it's usually within private corporations, not government bodies. And private corporations don't have to divulge anything. There's laws that protect them from divulging what they would consider trade secrets, regardless of where they, where they got them. Um, so by handing this information over to the private sector, they're no longer under government accountability. So when they're saying, oh, well, do you guys have crashed vehicles or parts? Generally, no, because those have been handed over to private corporations who are not up there saying anything. And nobody's really talking much about them. There's there's mention of, of the tech and that it's being, um, you know, disengineered and then of course you know, re-engineered with our ways of doing things or whatever to where we can get some viable technology out of it but at the same time they're not mentioning that really all this is happening in the hands of private sector they're the government is just a bunch of people with a bunch of titles they don't really have facilities that that build aircraft and do things these aren't governments they're all private com corporations under government contracts so you know, and some of the stuff that you're talking about, as far as the compartmentalization of, of all this stuff, and 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 that being a, um, a, a you know, a, call it what it is. It's I mean, it's a scapegoat that the government uses, and and it works very good for them. Um, but you know, like people who are just starting to kind of come into um, accepting and and having a an interest in this in this type of stuff because it has been so much in the news lately. Um, and not all news, not all news. I mean, News Nation has done a, an extremely good job about keeping mm -hmm. this in the forefront of people's minds. Um, when when all the other uh, big big news organizations have have basically uh, stepped away from it. Um, right. But you know, myself having been into this for as long as I have, and and remembering seeing Bob Lazar first interviewed in the front seat of a pickup truck with uh, George Knapp about his, uh, about his experiences at S4 mm -hmm. from the very beginning. And, and I will go on record as saying that many people say that Lazar is a whack job and a nut job and he never was, you know, it's all a bunch of BS. That man's story has never changed. Since well, you know, 
I know, not to cut you off, but yeah. I know, I know what you mean. It's never, and I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I know other people like him, and odd they are, and they are all like that. They, yeah. they. So to me, if a guy's telling a story, you have to live that life to become that type of a human being. To just talk the way he talks and have the mannerisms and his mannerisms, it's very much like the guys that I knew that were kept away from society. Um, if they went out to uh, Golden Corral for the buffet, they usually had a chaperone. That's how it usually was. So they weren't talking to anybody. And you could tell he has those same social awkward behavior yeah. that the rest of them do. So to me, there's some validation. I'm sorry to coach you off. No, it, the, the point I was going to get at is that, you know, a lot of people nowadays, um, who, like I said, who are just kind of in the infancy of becoming interested in this, in this topic, because it's so far in their faces. Um, mm -hmm. This this idea of compartmentalization um, to some people may be like, oh, well, that's just a great, you know, that's a that's a perfect excuse for, you know, it's all BS. Um, hey, Lazar was talking about it in, in 88 and 89 that, mm -hmm. you know, that everything was compartmentalized. I mean, he was there to do one job. He wasn't allowed to talk to the people who were working on the piece that had, came before his. And he was not able to talk to the people who came that were working on the piece that goes after his. It was strictly his piece and, you know, compartmentalization. When you think about it and you start breaking it down, that is a very good way to keep a lot of information from getting it in, in, into yeah. any one head. Yeah. And you can have 30 companies actually doing the work and only one or two be privy to what any of the work means. And, because if you're dropped off a component or a material and you're said, here, analyze this, the best you can find a way. Now that might be all that company does. Then you take it to another, the analytic report on a material or whatever. Right. And then it's like, here, find a way to replicate this. They have no clue what it came from, what it is, what it means. They have no idea at all. They don't have any clue. Um, and therefore they're just going to do their job, turn in their report or turn in their material or whatever they're going to do somewhere. It's all being amassed and assembled somewhere. The information exists. Um, and then you can imagine that in order to do anything with this stuff, there would have to be one or two key players with the ability to, uh, to fabricate the components and to uh, initialize the assembly of things, you know, that we may have never messed with, whether it be fields or whatever it might be. And, and so, but they would have to understand. So, but it's going to be still a very tight circle. Um, really, really tight. And they have no vested interest in sharing this, any of it with anybody. I mean, really. Right. Uh, so they're not the kind of people generally that get into those positions aren't necessarily the kind of people that are the Robin Hoods. Let's put it that way. Right. You know? Right. So. So that being said, the information that you have and that you were entrusted with, how how does that play into what we're going through today? Well, okay. It's a pretty complicated situation in a way, and I can kind of summarize it in a nutshell. The more it's summarized, the crazier it sounds. But we're talking about the admission of off-world craft. Um, it had, it's not just phenomena anymore. Now it's, okay, yes, they're right. basically made by beings that are not human, whether they're ultra-terrestrial, extraterrestrial, time, dimension, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're going full-blown anyway. Um, but what's not being discussed is they're aware of not just one group and this happening, that multitudes of groups 
with each with their own sensibilities and ways of perceiving their surroundings and dealing with those surroundings and their environment, um, each with their own basically agenda, um, what they're doing, what they want to achieve. And it's all different. There's no lump sum. So whenever you see an extreme generalization, um, then you have to understand somebody's probably funneling you down one pathway or another um, because the interests of it, it just goes to figure. I mean, law of averages and the way the universe works that each different group or disconnected entity is going to absolutely have their own processes and their own agenda. So when they talk about, are they nice or are they mean, do they represent a threat, whatever? Well, law of averages, they're going to represent the gamut. Um, simple statement is if you've managed to get that far and get that advanced in most cases, you're not going to be totalitarian and warmongering. And like we say, well, every advanced culture that encounters a primitive culture usually wipes them out. Yeah, but to a point, and it's like a state of change, you know, when things uh, boil, turn into a gas, burn, or turn and go to plasma, there's a state of change. It can only be pushed so far. And then they wipe themselves out. And if they make it past that state of change, you can't imagine that they are conquerors anymore. Because if you are that way, eventually you conquer yourself and you eliminate yourself from the equation. So the simple fact that something's going to get to be that advanced and be able to do the things they're doing for the period of time that apparently they've been doing it states in itself that they probably are not. Anything that wants to come take something from you, move you out of the way to get what they want or anything like that. I mean, if it was nefarious, they probably already would have done that to each other and cleaned the slate a long time ago, which is what we're facing now. We're bumping the edge of that reality. Are we going to be who we would like to run into in the near future? Are we going to be that? So when we visit other worlds, who are we going to be there? Do I honestly think we'll make it? that far if we continue to be jerks to each other and what and the whole mentality of i want to get this i want to get that and i'm powerful through one means or another and you're not um i don't think we'll ever get there by then because the closer we get to it then the closer we get to just erasing ourselves through those selfish uh interests so so you know like arguably um and this is just simply by years and years of paying attention and, and reading and, and looking into and sorting through what seems to be bullshit and what seems to be logical. It, it, I think it's a, it, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty okay stance to say that these things have been here throughout our history. And in, in some people's opinions, which I'm, I'm, it's hard to fathom 25,000 years, I mean, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to fathom as as a as a fifty eight year old man. It's hard to fathom what twenty five thousand years yeah. would seem like. Oh, but it, or but it does seem that they've been around for at least mm -hmm. that amount of time, if not longer. Well, imagine this, and and when we say they again, so some of them naturally would be arriving here tomorrow for their first time because that's how the universe works. Um, if there's more than one group, then there's more than one time of arrival. And so arrival, you know, departation and arrival is just like seeds, I'm sure, spreading in the wind when it comes to the universe. Um, and so it's, I don't think there's ever a time where visitation started or stopped in that sense. Um, 
there could have been visitations going on longer than this planet's been stable um, in, in different periods. So they, so different entire epochs. So you could have had 300,000 and 3 million and 30 million. If it's just as likely 10 years ago, it's just as likely 30 million years ago when you consider the age of the universe, right? At, at least the accepted scientific viewpoint of everything. Right. Um, if we're going to limit it to 12,000 years because of scripture and things like that, then I think that people are still really understanding and interpreting a man's variation of a word. Um, and I hate to do that, but, but, and the reason I say is it's, this is how information is used is it, as in the Bible, it says that in the beginning, the earth uh, was dark and void of shape and darkness became upon the face of the deep, but, or was upon the face of the deep, but the word was is translated from became. So even the people that believe, Biblically, that the world's only 6,000 or 12,000 years old, you know, there's no word was in Hebrew. It was became, becomes, or become. So, and the earth, you know, became dark and void of shape, and darkness became upon the face of the deep. So, that, that, that infers that there was something before that. So, <clears throat> do I believe we've got a full history of everything going on? No. Do I believe that there are probably cultures that have a longer history of earth than we will ever be aware of because they may have? <clears throat> excuse me, they may, may have been visiting this planet before we were even modern humans in that sense. They could have been visiting us 500,000 years ago before we were homo sapiens sapien. Um, and we were just the type of human that was running around then and, and, and taught and had interaction with and the whole nine yards, even maybe shared a uh, life and, and became advanced themselves. We just, can't tell because what we're looking at in time frames, even to 25,000 years, like you said, when we look at 58 years, oh, well, that's my life, 25,000, God, that's a long time. What's 300,000 or 3 million? Um, and that possibility, 3 million, 30 million, is not out of the realm at all. I mean, not at all. It should be expected if we're saying they're coming here at all because of the age of the universe and how late we came about in it. Um, we're not a newcomer. I mean, we're not a, one of the old seasoned batches. Right. We're a newcomer. We're on the edge of just getting here. At least this so, version of us. Yeah, right. Exactly. At least it's, and, and, and this could be by billions of years. So, you know, I mean, it, it, you have to look at it that way. And, and to get back to the point of your question, I think that the paperwork and the stuff that I've seen have been privy to. So naturally the paperwork, this individual paperwork isn't necessarily, all I've been made privy to. Um, but this in itself has, I think is dramatically important. And the reason I say that's because where they're going with the funneling and the, and the, and the channeling of this information and the, what you'd call disclosure kind of means I'm going to let you suck off a wet rag instead of just give you a drink. Um, that's what you call disclosure because that's a measured, that's a measured word. It's, it's the amount you're being let, too. So, um, because if we were just related everything and the doors were wide open, where would all this go? I mean, in essence, you, it would flip and you'd either be wiped clean or you'd have Star Trek by tomorrow um, very quickly. And, you know, everybody wants to prop and hold themselves in position and make sure everything's okay. And usually it's all self-interest. Um, this paperwork in itself gives clarity and insinuates a reality that's more true to life in a sense than what they're kind of giving us. So when they tell us all these things, we know it's way watered down. It's, and because common sense says, if this is there, then this has got to be there too. Um, if this is happening, then this must be happening too. 
um, and things like that. So there's, there's negative aspects introduced just by dealing with, let's say somebody's abandoned ship and you go chasing the enemies all over the mountain, steal their ship, cage them up. You've already stepped over the boundary of, is there any type of negative interaction? So, or the potential for, uh, for retaliation or whatever. But with this stuff, it gives a, more of a reality because it's, it's to a matter of fact, um, what we're being spoon fed doesn't quite play to reality, but we know it's all we're going to get. Right. So we take it, we take it, we try to glean out fact from fiction or, or, you know, how much more there is behind what we're hearing. Um, and in all sense of reality, um, it's, it's better and worse than it's more extreme to both ends of the spectrum than what we're being told, you know, um, these beings, these particular ones of the curl papers in regard to, um, you know, they're having physical contact with these guys for years. And, um, and it's, it's all that information about how things basically went and how it was handled and who did what and how long things survived and what information was exchanged and things like that. Um, and if people need to realize that because if the government had recovered craft and advanced beings, you're talking advanced beings, not chasing around some type of monkey thing or whatever. Right. Right. So you're talking communication, negotiation, deal making uh, naturally because it's an advanced creature. Not, um, not to mention all those things that you just said, but not to mention to be faced with having to, understand what their proprietary you have to have an understanding of of who you're dealing with what their civilization is about what their what aspects of their nature do they uh, hold in high regard what parts of their nature do they hold in low regard you know in order to have those communications those negotiations those communications that they're having there has to be some understanding mm-hmm. of of what they are and where they come from and mm-hmm. that in itself would have to be an incredibly daunting task whether whether we're talking about something that happened that was good or bad or indifferent or if it's being kept secret from us, or if they're telling us about it, wiping all that out of the way. If these things are going on, the the monumental task ahead of the, the human side of that communication, the human side of that conversation, I can't even imagine the process that they would have to go through in order to be able to have those communications. It's mm-hmm. it's staggering. Well, I mean, to me, we'd be fully dependent upon them uh, for any type of interaction and in the whole nine yards because we can't even communicate with other forms of life on our own planet mm-hmm. that that have high communication skills. Yeah. Um, we're just like duh, and I mean, dogs learn our language before we learn theirs. You have to think about that. You know, um, parrots, all this stuff. They can literally learn and know exactly what we're saying. We can hear dogs and cats bark forever. We're just like, oh, they're happy, they're sad. Yeah, daddy's coming home because that's the way he acts, you know. Um, But, yeah, so we would be dependent upon something else out there anyway. And seeing as our interest would be 
well, it'd be, it would be limitless what we would go to to acquire the kind of tech understandings and abilities that they portray. So you can imagine that we'd, meet, we'd make any deal that any of them wanted. Right. And that no two are going to want the same deal or even want a deal. So when you look at it that way, that's why I wanted to, to get across that there's a lot of things coming here. And if, if one won't make a deal with us for stuff, a different one probably will. And, and the sensibility. So imagine what the sensibility of a highly evolved turtle would have. Um, it's, or, or any other creature, a praying mantis or anything else. When you're saying non-human and, and it's from another planet in another system somewhere else, either in this galaxy or another, it's not likely it's a primate or even close to that. And you can imagine how differently animals on Earth think about their surroundings and how they deal with what they're doing and how, what their interests are, like you said. Um, you're going to have the gamut. Law of average just says you're going to have nefarious as well as enlightened. And now it may not be like what we would think where it's sinister. Hey, we want to conquer you earthlings. But at the same time, we may not be even seen as worth the time of day. Um, and nothing may be seen worth the time of day to some of them. Their sensibilities just may not be there. Um, so, you know, it's so going to be so far out from what we are that we would may even look at activities and thank God that's evil. Um, please save me from this and, and not even realize that there may not be an evil or not evil to it. It just could be something that's just a matter of fact, and they don't consider anything other than that. Um, so we don't have a clue. Cause I mean, a lot of the things that are occurring and have been occurring and the deals, like I mentioned with the government, so you're going to have these kind of deals. You're going to have uh, facilitation or whatever an advanced culture would want. If you think they're going to drizzle down, anything, at least in this culture, that would give you an advantage, tactical or otherwise, monetary, tactical or whatever, you're going to take it and run with it in the whole nine yards, um, which goes to show you we probably don't deserve any of it, um, even though I'd love for all this to come out. Uh, so the doors are open for some pretty sketchy things to be happening, and people need to, like, to take a better look, like the balance of the yellow book. And you mentioned MJ 12 and all that stuff. Well, there's the balance. Of the yellow book is because it's a balance. There's an exchange. That's why it's regarded that way in different writs. And it is a listing of humans that, that get snatched or taken or messed with repeatedly or whatever. And they're supposed to be providing this. And this goes back to an old, old deal for early information exchange back to the early fifties. Um, the landing at Holloman Air Force Base and all that stuff that went down. People can research all this. Um, and that was a real deal that occurred. And, but not one race, you know, what we hear, though, is, is, well, one race landed. And that's not the way it went down. So two races landed. And the first race landed and gave us an, an, an kind of an ultimatum without, you know, they weren't going to do anything. But the ultimatum was that, that we were going to be allowed either to wipe ourselves off the rock or we could step up and change the systems to where there basically wasn't the rulers of earth and the dishonesty and the, the prevention of humanity from evolving and flowering like it's supposed to into a beautiful thing that seeds the universe and just keeping us stagnant and dammed up in this pond so that the people that are here with it can be big fish. And that's basically the gist is, is give that up and become enlightened and we'll take you up there. If, but don't, and we'll just let you wipe yourselves out because, you know, it's not our job. And we chose not to mess with them because that would have been relinquishing control and all this other stuff. So at the deepest levels of humanity, 
we turned down a great opportunity. And it wasn't long behind that that we were contacted by another race. They weren't; ne- they were not near as 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 wonderful, you might say, as the first one. Um, again, it was Edwards Air Force Base in Holloman, and and they made deals with us. And um, this came on the tail end of actually uh, shooting down. If you really do the research, you learn that things weren't just crashing. Um, we were shooting them down. Right. So, and we were doing it with Tesla weapons and you can go out and if you really want to really dig on Google earth and go out there around and look in the right place between Edwards and S4, um, you can find what's called project lure, which are unusual buildings and, and structures. And then, pro- and then project Flytrap, which was a beam weapon. And it's sitting on the desert five, 10 miles away from project lure facility. And it happens to be in line with a lot of these wrecks. And um, so they're basically luring them in, shooting them down, recovering them. And it was a directed um, energy weapon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so, so what you end up with is is kind of forced contact. And that group was was already using humans, uh, processing humans, and blah blah. Um, that's what's described in a lot of the stuff I have. Um, you know, uh, it goes right into the species, what they are and how they consume nutrients and how they expel toxins and, um, and a lot of the biology and things like that. And when you learn all the ins and outs of the reality of it, which we're privy to, um, you understand where a lot of the legends, things like, uh, vampiric creatures and, and all these different things, all these names for all these kind of creatures throughout time. Um, most of them perceived demonic, um, are probably originating from this group. And it's because they're so, they've always been very intertwined in humanity, kind of in the shadows of humanity, taking and, and using us. And if you really want to equate it, we're basically two things to them from what I, everything I could glean. And that is, um, we're cattle. Um, and we're also uh, a source for drugs. So if you want to, because we manufacture things in our body that cannot compounds that cannot be synthesized in any other means, um, or it's the choice because the same thing is with the fluids. I mean, they ingest million, mammalian fluids. Uh, that's what they consume. So in a sense, you could consider them a parasite uh, because of what they do to humanity and how they feed off the humanity itself um, without killing the host not like a virus kills the host and a parasite leaves the host intact so it can continue to feed on it and it's kind of what they've been doing to uh, us as a species and apparently this has been going on as long as humans have been walking Um, and it's just as possible that these things are from here even if they're now um, interplanetary or interstellar um, that the origination may have been here on earth actually for them. So they could really? have been here the entire time through an evolutionary process. They may predate us, predate us by millions of years. So, so the, the, the papers that you were entrusted with, they mm-hmm. were, they were given to you and they were written by a gentleman named William Cooper, William Cooper. Mm-hmm. And can you give us a brief synopsis of how how you came about being one of the ones one of the handful of men who were entrusted with this uh, these documents um 
why you were entrusted with them and what you were told to do with them. And then let's get into some of the things. And if you have the need at all to share your screen um, at any time, if you wanted to pull up documents or anything, feel free to do that. Just let me know so I can add it to the to the stream. But let, let's get into some of the stuff that you have, have gone through and found to be, I'm sure it's all very interesting, um, but the things that you have managed to pull out of that were, uh, let's say, not things that we're hearing every day, not things that we're being made privy to, um, even even being remotely interested in this subject and having been looking into it for years. What are the things that have surprised you that you've looked into? Well, as far as surprise me, I don't I don't know much because it's always just been a journey through the information and just the simple genre itself is it would be normally socially surprising. But having known about all these things that exist, I've you know, saw UFO since I was a little kid and um, they found me after being missing for hours, standing beneath the UFO that was in the sky and all kinds of crap. So it's, I've never had a time they weren't just a part of reality to me, um, even through my childhood. So I didn't honestly find much of this surprising as much as enlightening. And it just makes sense. It answers a lot of other questions. And, and even, even so much as, um, kind of expresses a method of looking at other interactions between off-world beings and on-world beings and their agendas throughout time and how information plays out and, and seeing how that is actually shown in what we find today. You know, that's one of the ways I got into the stone monuments and things like that was um, a lot of the stuff isn't being made by, by what we call modern humans. And a lot of the stuff was made by off-worlders. And it was all interplay. There was interplay through all of it. So everyone was you know, trading and hiding and doing everything from everybody else throughout time, humans and non-humans. Um, this information was released basically by William Cooper because he needed to get all of this off his chest. And to, it was granted to me because what we were doing at the time, even in 1988, um, like at that time we were actually discovering the lost uh, winter home of Coronado and the, and the the lost mines called the mines of the Apache teardrop or the golden teardrop, and um, and so we were doing pretty high end controversial stuff then, and as well we were living in a place where we were having interaction with beings um, that were probably the same ones because and, and I mean being in the same little fifth wheel trailer with a number of them and um, all kind of, I mean. Uh, some pretty sketchy stuff going on right there within feet of you and those things. And so there was people who were privy to what was going on. Just as, as I grew up, I was kind of an odd person. So um, I got visited by Lawrence Livermore labs and these guys, because I, my first electronics project in high school, I wanted to make an anti-gravitational ship and, and, and I had designs for it. And my electronics teacher had called some from the lab and said, you got to see this shit anyway. And it just kind of went on from there. So I think I kind of got noticed. And then when we started being around those beings and this and that and doing the stuff with it, going to Arizona state university with pieces of, of chalice from, you know, the family of Coronado and, and things like that. Then, then the name I'm sure just kept it in different channels. And then I went to work in Phoenix for Peter Piper pizza of all places. <laughs> and I was as, as a manager and, um, and 
my store was doing really well, whatever this and that. And a GM came in one day from the company and just, just deliberately made contact with me. And so he represented a guy named Bo Greitz, who at the time was the highest decorated military veteran of all time. And that's where the soldiers memoirs, um, the Radon and Tebby and, um, even Rambo came from his, uh, his memoirs and stuff. He was the guy that went and recovered the black box from the Russian air base when RU2 was shut down. And, um, so he was one of the best of the best in the world and, and they turned on him, uh, him and his team. And so he basically was going to go rogue. And so, I, how I got connected with those guys is the same thing because we're, we're trying to bust the limit and, and bring truth, and that's it, and we really didn't care. So we gained a lot of respect. And through them, um, this GM just made contact and said, here, I was told to hand these to you. Um, you're one of, at that time, five people. Uh, these are being distributed to and to hold on to them, and that you'll know when to, when to do something with them. And... Um, and so, because William Cooper did end up getting killed. So, um, but this was all to try and prevent that from happening. And if it did to have the information in random hands that were trustworthy, that would understand and have the balls to do what you're supposed to do with them when the time came. And so when, um, when all this stuff started coming out that we're seeing now, it's just the times here, because if you really, Releasing them too early, yeah, it could have been dangerous on a personal level uh, to some degree, but it wouldn't have meant that much. Um, it just would have been another story and, and tossed out, you know, whatever. And so, um, but now with everything that's going on, you know, the validity that something is there has now been granted. And so it's kind of like, okay, what's there? Well, here, let's let's go back through this and discover what's there because, you know, they're just admitting it now, but this stuff was gleaned and pulled um, many, many years ago. So, and I'll tell you, I don't even know what still frames are in this computer um, regarding this. And I don't have a camera set up on my system right now to be able to film them. Um, but, you know, they're basically... They're right here. So, um, you know, I, I could just, I'll just read something really quick, which is the, the cover page. And it says, Magic 12 document, Operation Majority, final release, there will be no corrections to this file, copyright 1989 by Milton William Cooper, all rights reserved. You have my permission to quote from this information, press releases, periodicals, and speeches, inclusion, and the other media requires my express written permission. This file contains the absolute true information regarding the alien presence on earth and the U S government involvement with the aliens. This file contains only the information as I saw it. And only my information does not contain any information from any other source. It was necessary for me to issue the information previous to release in a manner which would deceive the government until someone was able to independently confirm my identity, my employment, <clears throat> my service record, my intelligence background, the identity of the person to which I gave the information to in 1972, his acknowledgement of the information when it was given to him, that the information is correct, that I have not seen him since 1974, and that I have not communicated with him in any form since 1976. This was necessary because this file is my death warrant if MJ-12 continues to operate in a manner consistent with its history. All in the last paragraph has been independently verified by two people and have no connection with each other. I will only list one for obvious reasons. Tony 
Pelham, Journalist, Las Vegas, Bullet, Newspaper, 300 West Boston, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89102. The original information that I first released was not much different than what you will find here. Only some names were different just enough, I hope, to convince MJ-12 and Magi I was not a threat long enough to have independent verification of the facts before I risked death. I wish to make absolutely clear that I do not consider myself a hero. I believe that most of you would do the same thing if you knew the truth. I gave an oath that I would uphold and protect the Constitution of the United States of America, and I take that oath very seriously. That's the cover page. <clears throat> that that says a lot right there. That is uh that doesn't sound like the, the pages to follow are gonna be filled with a bunch of uh malarkey. No, and they don't fart glitter. <laughs> you know. Um everything isn't just as everybody wants it to be. Some people want them to be uh clowns other people want them to be enemies other people want them to be our saviors um and all is true and none of it's true it's 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 real it's the reality of it are people nice you know it goes back to that same thing again um our parakeets nice just want to bite your finger and the other one won't so it, we're looking at that same reality and it goes deeper than anyone would realize when you look at who's connected to what and how long they've been playing the game inside of humanity's operation. So it's appearing that um, this may not be the same group that like came and made us uh, mine gold for them. Let's put it that way. But it may be the group behind that effort at some point or another, or just another group. But either way, they've been, these ones, those ones have been involved in the back door of humanity, running things, uh, propping up some with power and influence and, and pulling that away from others. And you can see all throughout history where you'll have a, a shield in the sky that helps one side of an army or another. Why in the world would they ever have an interest in stepping in and assisting one group over another group? And it's not always the most moral or ethical group. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But you have to assume then at that point that there's things going on and it's basically a political nature. Um, some of these might be hyper political in nature, you know, the Borg in a sense, um, counting every grain of sand and allotting for every moment of every action by every individual, um, things like that. And, and we look at those forms of control over time with humanity and humanity usually bounces back, rises up, things go sour and these races seem to step back and slowly work their way in again and do it again, do it again. So, you know, regarding this stuff, it's basically a, there's groups mentioned several, but this is a single solitary group um, as regarded by one of the subjects that they had, you could say in captivity, but after a while it wasn't quite like that. Um, one was actually left here with us voluntarily for a period of time. And that was because we were supposed to be leaving a um, certain amount of those individuals installing them on our planet um, in type of a, an exchange program, even though they were doing their own thing. So basically they, they were already incorporating areas and structures within our planet. And, and we developed weapons that, that they had to fear. And so that we began to push and have leverage um, basically, we're going to give you hell and make life a living nightmare and nuke the whole planet if you don't uh, make a deal or allow us to do this and that. And so, and this goes from both sides um, to where now you've got cooperation. 
and and a lot of very specific interests in that cooperation and everyone else is just kind of disregarded. Um, you know, just based, so, based on what you just said, um, there, there's a, there's a gentleman who's, um, whose testimonies and his, uh, presentations have, have always kind of haunted me throughout the years. Uh, Phil, um, Phil Schneider. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. and you know, his, his, uh, his story about being in the uh, Dulce underground base. Um, what you're talking about is 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 a validation of the very same things that Phil was talking about, <laughs> as far yeah. as that that uh, coercion that that's taking place between humanity and some segment or or some civilization of these extraterrestrial or ultra terrestrial beings. Um, right. Is there anything in the paper that would like directly, directly point to what he was talking about? Not necessarily just specifically the Dulce incident, but I mean, are, is there stuff in there that would, would be a, a big nod to, to those types of, well, yeah, because it, it explains basically what, what Phil Snyder through those years was experiencing was the years when the push and pull and the leverage was going on with these beings and our development of deep earth bunker busters and stuff like that. So when we, we do, it talks about, actually it talks all about the weapons we created to be able to take out their underground bases, two to three miles deep um, and, and be able to do that. That was, so we had, and it talks about the apogee of the rocket and the speed and, and all the technical stuff of, and the name of, it, of, of those weapons. So, so are you, able, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are you, are you talking about, was there a, was there a point where the, um, the union of human and, and these extra EBEs, extra biological entities, mm -hmm. That that things went south and they decided to go rogue and and go deep inside of our no earth. Um, they've all they probably already they were already they in were already our there. earth. Okay, yeah. So, but they're expanding and making more and more. And um, with humans, when when we discovered what was basically going on and had a clue, we developed weapons that could that could affect them. And there was never like a, a good time between everybody where they were just all holly jolly and then they burned each other. There was always that push and play of, of both sides trying to hustle each other for basically what they wanted. Because it doesn't benefit those little dudes if we wipe ourselves out either because it takes out their food resource and their planet and the whole nine yards. So there's, there's, there's a balancing trick going on and power plays. And you could say that the people at the highest departments – you could call them nefarious and evil, but really what would you do if you had the responsibility of humanity and you're faced with these beings that, that perceptually they could just do anything they wanted to us at any given time? Would you, in a sense, might you sell us out to preserve us by some nature? So a lot of these guys are doing what they do because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, it's not just because they're gaining anything from it. It's because they're, they're playing with fire. And they're trying not to get themselves and everyone else burned. So, and as well, then there's those interests that profit from it and everything else. And, and it's, 
you know, it's, it's, it's in their realm to hide it. Um, that's why you have like, you know, the head of Lockheed come out and say, you know, we, we already have the technology to take ET home. Um, he's not a nefarious guy. These are the guys who think they're doing this for the right reasons. And then of course there's the other ones that, that play the other realm, you know, wipe out witnesses and, and stuff like that. So, um, this stuff definitely fits with Snyder because, um, the, the, like the weapons are mentioned to take out bases like Snyder found when they got into Dulce and discovered what was really going on down there. So they had already had two wrecks near Aztec, New Mexico, where they, they, the, in, in the crashed vehicles were found containers with human parts in them in fluid. And those were recovered before the Dulce thing was happening. And they understood that's where this stuff was going in and out. That's where these things were going. So drilling the holes at Dulce wasn't just a haphazard drilling a hole in the ground. They were boring in to hit these things. So, um, you know, they're not going to tell the contractor that. Right. And they didn't. But you notice they already had military on site ready to go and combat ready. Why would you do that if you're just drilling a hole in a mesa? They don't. That, that's they hire contracts every day. They don't have guys combat ready on top of the holes. That's what's always been so kind of <clears throat> confusing about his uh, his 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 uh, presentation when he would talk live, um, because there were times, many times, I've I've seen it in one or two where he does kind of address that, but many times he just kind of jumps to that there was a military presence there, but you were never really quite sure why, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, green, green berets all were there, boom, yeah, right there. Yeah. It, with him, went down with him, yep. threw him behind him, took the brunt of the hit and all that kind of stuff. He got wiped out. Well, exactly. Why would there be a guy in your, he's a mining engineer, tunneling engineer. He's just going into a hole that was bored in the ground. Um, how many times does the military accompany you that? Even if it's you doing a DOD contract or whatever, there's none of those guys are there. I mean, there's no reason for them to be there. What are they going to do? Right. Guard rock, right? Yeah. So you, Earth, you know Earth there was... coming after you. Yeah, we already knew what was going on. And and we developed, like I said, the, the, the stuff to be able to um, affect them in that sense, I mean, make their life a little more difficult. Um, and so... Uh, what I noticed, and I'll just drop some stuff. So, and it goes, it goes with the stuff. So there's certain years you can look at seismic maps and especially in the areas like kind of where we are even now, because um, it's one of the most seismically stable locations on the earth. And, but there was events that happened and, you know, you'll have a seismic event around a four, then a three, then a one, and then nothing. And then within a month or two, you begin cattle mutilations in a certain area around that event. And they definitely correlate. And what we believe is what I, what I came to over the years, just seeing how all of it goes together with what I know and everything. Apparently, they're building bases. And they blow them out, and then they a couple more hits to get rid of or change the form of radiation. And then they start to begin to occupy them. And then shortly after, they're getting colloidal tissue, which is the tissues in the body that create fluids. So what's the common denominator? They take tongue, they take lips, they take ear, they take uh, eyes. These are all things, uh, the spinal column, these are all things that make fluids in the body, all the different fluid sources. And so what we can, what I put two and two together through this paperwork, through all the other stuff that's going, um, that apparently they consume a million fluids, and so they need to provide 
populations with those things without just going up and letting know everybody's here. So apparently they're procuring biologic material so that then they can replicate it and clone it and continue just like we're doing with the meat thing where we're going to have make our meat right and 3d print our meat now um from from cells grown in a lab where they're doing the same thing they're growing cells that can produce the fluid that they consume so humans apparently are a delicacy or it's preferred and i don't think they really care um i think it's just we've been a food source to them for so long that it's no different than anything else um we're not much more advanced than monkeys compared to really most of the creatures out there when you look at what they can do and, and, and all this, you know, we're, we're just not up there. So is there um, anything, is there anything in the paper that um, points to any specific race or gender or um, age group or anything uh, that, that one could say, you know, you're, you're in the, uh, you're in the high risk zone. You're in the high risk category for. No. Okay. Mm-mm. No, it's just yeah, human procurement. So it doesn't even, and we're not re- we're not told any of that. So like the yellow book is just a list, because that's what we demanded. And basically, we're going to nuke you guys off the planet if you don't tell us what you're doing and give us a list of who you're affecting, who you're taking, and what they wanted was we expect you to install that same amount of beings here. And with the thought that we could annihilate them if they screwed us over too hard. Um, so it's, it's, it's like um, two different parties having one of the, the opposing party come and hang out with them during truces and things like that. Yeah. Um, that trusting. And, and so it's not really trust, but it's kind of on the edge of, right? It's almost like um, a, a small insurance policy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what we offer. And so, and we're, we're allowing them to do whatever they want to do without questioning why they're doing it because we want that stuff. We want that ability. Now, to think that they'd ever just give us anything that would threaten them to the point that we could have the advantage is kind of dumb. But they'd give us plenty that would give the advantage over everybody else on this rock anyway. So it's it's this gamble that's been going on. And, and that's why there's, there's a connected world that's outside of our culture and society. It's a divergent civilization and it does exist. And we're kind of fodder in all that. And there's a large game going on and there's not many people playing that game. And, but there's, you know, a lot of people with the interests. So um, as far as the paperwork goes, you know, a lot of it is, the operations themselves. So when we're talking about, oh, well, there's a clandestine um, project to recover UFOs, and then, <clears throat> and then they, but they haven't told you the name of the project yet. And then, but this paperwork does that. So it goes, it goes project by project. Um, matter of fact, I can, I can pull up the name of. Uh, I'm get a light here. I can pull up the name of the project they're talking about. Well, Operation Majority is the name of the operation responsible for every aspect, project, and consequence of the alien presence on Earth. Um, Majesty was listed as the code word for the President of the United States for communications concerning this information. Then it goes on to Grudge and MJ-12 um, and some others. And then we get to, um, but we'll, we'll find the name of the one that they talked about. 
Uh, Sigma is the project which first established communications with the aliens and is still responsible for communications. Plato is the project responsible for diplomatic relations with the aliens. Project secured a formal treaty illegal under the Constitution with the aliens. The terms were that the aliens would give us technology and agree in return. We agreed to keep their presence on Earth a secret, not to interfere in any way with their actions and to allow them to abduct humans and animals. The aliens agreed to furnish MJ-12 with a list of abductees on a periodic basis. Magic is the security classification and clearance of all alien-connected material projects and information. Magic means magi-controlled. Aquarius is a project which compiled the history of the alien presence and their interaction with Homo sapiens upon the planet for the last 25,000 years and culminating with the Basque people who live in the mountainous country on the border of France, Spain, and Syrians. Garnet is the project responsible for control of all information and documents regarding the subject and accountability of information and these documents. Pluto is the project to evaluate all UFO IAC information. Pounce is the project formed to recover all downed craft and aliens. So the team that they're talking about is Project Pounce. And that's the one that is in charge of actually going and grabbing the craft after they've been shot down or crashed. And is, is there, are so, there any, are there any indications that that is still currently the, the name of that project? Or I would assume that it much like uh, blue book and ASAP and also Alta or ASAP, ALSAP and now whatever the, the newest, uh, uh, I, I would imagine that they've they've changed their yeah. names and a tip. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, they're probably the same thing. So these deals, what we're hearing on TV are, are basically created so we can hear about them on TV. Um, like, you know, Project Flytrap, Project Lure, that's going to remain the same thing. Anything that's going to have to do with that type of activity is still going to be under that classification of those projects. So because the people remain the same or whatever, individual aspects of it, titles change, and this stuff is only for internal anyway. So who's using the titles if you go by that means? Nothing's changed in their world. Um, things change in our world. Um, so we didn't use the old titles anyway because we didn't know what they were. So these are new things being thought up. Blue Book was a study. Um, ATIP is a study group. Um, they're not projects or operations conducted by the government. So um, as long as the operation is going on, that's the operation. So you can, it's like um, Operation Paperclip um, that concluded, or Operation High Jump. Well, those were tasks. So those concluded, but if they, if Operation High Jump, if they still had the same presence in Antarctica and that never stopped, well, Operation High Jump would still be Operation High Jump. Uh, at least that's leads to my understanding because um, everything I've seen so far, some of these projects go back quite a ways um, and with their basis in the thirties. Um, so, you know, the first information I saw about the recovery of a disc, a big disc was in Russia in 1936 then it crashed into a frozen lake and then exited out through like three feet of ice and um, like 90 foot in diameter. And then that's what, that's what started off the, the cult groups um, that ended up being up the Hitler regime. And then the same scientists we ended up grabbing hold of and, and putting to work here in the U S on our secret projects um, that all came from that stuff. That's where it originated. So I thought it was interesting um, in David Grush in his 
first interview uh, with News Nation. I forget the journalist's name, uh, English Englishman. Um, in that, he said that the first recovered craft was from 1933, and uh, Mussolini was actually the one who contacted the Vatican about it. Um, and then I believe the next one was the one that you just mentioned in Russia. Yeah, it would make sense. And I know the one that was hit Russia, they actually a deal made with German engineers to figure it out. Because for the most part at that time, Russia was a giant farming community. Yeah. Um, they weren't really industrial and they didn't have engineering background. So a lot of that, I believe, originated that led to the space uh, development things and Russia became one of the leaders in space. All that happened basically from potato farming um, at, in a sense at one time. And it happened very abruptly and very quickly. And Germany had already already been type of the engineer types. Um, so they were entrusted with it. But you can watch both of them accelerated dramatically at that point, but to- down totally different roads. So... Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc very interesting and you know i mean obviously uh nasa would never have become nasa without the uh the german engineers that <laughs> that right. were, were brought over here after the war so exactly now um i will say there's you know there's things covered in these like uh the men in black um there's an entire section here those are really can you um, give a, can you give a, a synopsis of what that says yeah there's another one that's even called um observations by a visiting nordic yeah i'll go we'll see what men in black says now i i have not memorized these or anything like that i read them 25 years ago and i just had a reading on the first part uh, on our video and then um, i haven't read the rest of them in years did you have some so issues with uh with the videos that you've put out you with mean? us already did you have some something come up being taken down because of it or well i had i've i've had the, the live question and answer follow-up video to my reading of these papers um, removed. Um, and it was a great one, man. I did a lot of work to do it. And yeah, it, it was, it was actually removed. And oh, with no explanation? No, nothing. Yeah. Not even a, no, not, not even a listing that never existed. So uh, this one, and I don't know what this says. It just says confidential situation report on our acquisition of advanced technology and interaction with alien cultures. The men in black, all things considered, UF research has been pretty much a circus today, and the most intriguing controversial 
sideshow skirting the edges is the question of the silencers or the mysterious men in black. There is a strong subliminal appeal in these accounts of visits of mysterious dark-suited figures. And he says, I have been visited myself and others I've known. He says, in the attempt to silence UFO witnesses, a typical situation would be that a witness has a UFO sighting or UFO related experience. Shortly thereafter, he is visited by one or more of the odd-looking men who relate to him the minutest details of the experience, even though he has yet told no one for fear of ridicule or other reasons. The men warn him about spreading the story. I'm going to summarize a little bit. Uh, if the evidence exists, it's confiscated one way or another. Um, says, uh, if at all, but it says, we actually seem to find ourselves in close proximity to beings who obviously must be directly connected in some way with the objects themselves or the source behind them. They, they seem to be functioning unobtrusively within the framework of our own everyday existence. The classic conception of an MIB is a man of indefinite age, medium height, dressed completely in black. He always has a black hat and often black turtleneck sweater. They present an appearance, often described as strange or odd. They speak in dual monotone voice like a computer and the dark eyed completed with high cheekbones, thin lips, pointed chin and eyes that are mildly slanted. The visitors themselves are often absurd on absurd missions. They have reportedly posed as salesmen, telephone repairmen, or representatives from official or unofficial organizations. Their mode of transportation is usually large cars, black or Buick Lincolns, um, all black, of course. I might note that at this point, their physical appearance also included beings that have pale grayish skin and that some of them have been seen to have blonde hair, yet they wear clothing and drive the cars previously described. Their cars operate with the headlights off, but ghostly. Now, this is where they got all this for the movie. See, ghostly purpose or greenish glows illuminate the interior. Unusual insignia have been seen emblazed on the doors, and license plates are always unidentifiable and untraceable. The fabric of their clothes has been described as strangely shiny or thin, but not silky, almost as if they have been cut from a new type of fabric. Their often mechanical behavior has caused them to be described as being like robots or androids. And it says, think back to the Dulce, Dulce lab. So he's referring to a description of a laboratory in Dulce. It says a lot of subscription, uh, descriptions of these folks are pretty bizarre. A businessman's family in Willwood, New Jersey, was visited by an unusually large man whose pant legs hiked up when he sat down, revealing a green wire grafted onto his skin and running up his leg. There are other cases that might be appearing on the other side of wet, muddy field or heavy rain, but having no mud what, whatever on their brightly shined shoes and bitter cold out of nowhere, wearing only a thin coat. Their shoes and wallets all seem new and hardly broken in. So these are a lot of details that we don't ever really hear. They are not alone. They seem to have faceless, faceless conspirators in the nation's post offices and phone companies. Researchers and witnesses often report their mail going astray at an unusually high rate and being bothered by bizarre phone calls when they are spoken to by metallic, unhuman-sounding voices. Unusual noises on the phone intensifying whenever UFOs are mentioned and voices breaking in on conversations have all led many people to suspect their phones are being tapped. One can't discuss the MIB for long without mentioning the name of John A. Keel, an author who has written much about them. Keel has done more than any other writer to publicize this bizarre aspect of the UFO situation. Keel suggests that the UFO are part of the environmental itself and come from another space-time continua. The most of the UFO phenomenon is psychic and psychological rather than physical. Um, 
he says he personally would not define it that way, but that's what he talks about Keen. Uh, he said the first notice appearance at MIB was in 1947, uh, scene of the Mari Island incident. So that's M-A-U-R-Y, if anyone wants to look that up, where some debris was ejected from a disc and subsequently recovered by officials who located them on an Army bomber which crashed on takeoff. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break into that for a second because this is really interesting. So years ago, we had it came up on one of my sites somebody brought up that there was a really weird bomber wreck in washington and idaho and i can't remember the year it might have been like 48 or something like that but anyway it was a b-29 and the bomber had just taken off and was circling and going up and it got to a few thousand feet and all of a sudden it just blew apart in the air and it talked about a debris field that was basically 90 degrees to the path of travel to the plane. And the debris field was, it, it was several thousand feet. So the debris field was, was over a mile or a couple of miles long and that there was hardly anything left of the plane. And, um, and then there was talk about writing that some, one of the guys wrote or whatever that he thought he saw a meteor go through the plane. And so we began to, to, to analyze that and got all the area and everything. And then something at the exact same night hit a lake in Idaho, came over a mountain range, went down and nailed a lake and it displaced all the water out of the lake. And the reason that they knew that was a guy that was running a moonshine still, which he took the chance of getting arrested or whatever. He went to the sheriff and he was in total disarray. He was injured and everything else. And he told them that something, a bright object came down over the mountain, smashed into the lake, displaced all the water. The water came up, washed him into the lake with logs and all kinds of other stuff, and he barely got out alive. And then <clears throat> that report was actually written down by the sheriff in this little town who then went up there and confirmed the scene that something big had happened. And then we started looking at reports of animals and fish and fishing reports from that were downstream from that lake. And what, when that event happened, then for five or seven years behind that, there was no fish downstream for miles, like 20 miles or whatever. There was no fish alive. And in the lake, too, it killed everything in the lake. And it's interesting that I read just right there that they're talking about a bomber that one smacked into. And this would have been the same years, just right at those same years that occurred. So that's really off the wall validation. So, so when you said the the – the debris field was 90 degrees to the flight path. Mm -hmm. That's indicating that what hit it, hit it with such force and such speed that it changed the entire trajectory. Yeah. And pulled everything with it. Yeah. 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 And went completely the opposite way. Yeah, and if you draw a line, it's really wild because you can go to the airport, draw a line, they show where the accident occurred um, and all that, and you can just kind of draw a line for a path of travel right through the plane and cross the center of the debris field, and it hit, and that line intersects that lake. So there's a high chance that one went through a bomber doing like 3,000 miles an hour and smacked that lake. And it's 
potentially still at the bottom of the lake today. So, because we've gone, we went through myself and this guy named Brian Stacks, who passed away. He was a good friend of Lee Spence, who they've had on TV a bunch, one of the most famous underwater archaeologists, treasure hunters in the world. Um, he, they call him the father of underwater archaeology. And Brian Stacks was his personal you know, it was basically his best friend and cohort. Brian's the one that actually found the Hunley submarine. And then the NOAA basically took away the find and claimed that find for themselves six years later. So Brian went through a lot of rough times, but he's the one who helped me do all the research on that stuff. And it came as a response when I got nuked by a chrome ball on a site um, in the sky. And then uh, they actually had found a chrome ball somewhere in Florida and Brian made his way from South Carolina to Florida um, within hours. To You're talking go about the Bet Sphere, aren't you? Uh, probably, but anyway, Brian was down there examining it within within so many hours. He got on a plane, went down there, and he was part of KX early on. Um, real good guy. and um, But he was the first independent person besides city officials and whoever in the Department of City Works who hauled it off to go look at it and went and looked at it in their shop on the floor where they were at and they had, they had, they said they dropped it, but they broke it open and it was a big cast magnesium sphere. Now we did that because I had just got nuked, like I said, by a chrome ball in the sky and I lost a lot of the hair on my head for two years. So, and all my eyebrow and my eyelashes, my mustache beard, just like a shadow line across my face. Really? And then, yeah. And then right about up to here and all the way to the very back and all that was just gone for two years baby butt smooth and then um it also fried all the electronics in my truck except for my cb the cb is the only thing that lived i still have it what what was um, the experience i mean were were you driving in your truck and this thing passed by you or no we were underground hanging by ropes excavating a vertical crack that had been backfilled and then we set off a couple really big blasts under this mesa on an ancient site and when we when we set the charges off, and then we were down in the ground mucking out these big, deep vertical cracks. And um, like I said, we're hanging on ropes because the ground would fall out below you and shit. And then after about four hours, I came out of that crack, got up there. This guy was, again, another deceased crew guy, um, Tony Tucker. Um, he just looked up and said, what's that? And I said, looks like a chrome. We were so beaten. I didn't even care. We, I told him, looks like a chrome ball, Tony. He said, what do you think it's doing? I said, I don't know, probably watching us, you know. And it was showing up, and then it would leave, and then it would show up in the hollow spaces because there was, like, it wasn't really stormy, but there was clouds laden with moisture and then with breaks in between. It was all sunny where we were, but to the east of us there, there was all breaks in between, and, and it would be in between those gaps in the clouds. Couldn't tell how big it was. And then um, I went and sat down in my truck and uh, and all by myself for a minute and started feeling weird. And I tried to make a call and I said nothing would work in the truck, just, just like that. And um, even the battery was dead, the, everything. There was everything was fried. It fried in the first Nokia bag phones, right when they first came out, we were running those, uh, fried that, fried my video camera, fried... Um, basically everything that was electrical in the truck except the CB and that didn't fry. And, um, and then when I went to the truck stop, uh, to go take a shower near where the excavation site was, this is a really big, big project. And then, um, yeah, I looked in the mirror when I got done, there was hair all over. I looked in the mirror and, and all that was just gone, gone. And so these guys from, um, Los Alamos laboratories came up 
and with a Geiger counter and another couple of instruments. And then we're checking me and they dropped him down the hole that I, cause I went down 68 feet down a 24 inch hole that reduced to 18 inches hanging underneath the drill stem to go look at a blast pocket, which is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life, but I did it. But we didn't know if I'd got exposed to something down there or up top. And so they came and checked environmentally everything. And the only common denominator was a chrome ball. And they told me that I received a, a really large dose, just a flash of ionizing radiation. And then um, years later, I went and got CAT scanned because I had some severe problem in the side of my head. And then they were like, what in the hell happened to you? All the bone inside your head's all screwed up and it's all lacy growth and your sinus and all this other stuff. And, um, and I just told them, well, I was exposed to a lot of ionizing radiation once on that side of my head. And the lady just, okay. You know, and then they fixed me up whatever was going on then so holy shit dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not exaggerating even a little bit man not even a little bit so and i wasn't i mean there was four or five other people there uh joe jacobson brock dudley joshua shaw um these are still friends of mine to this day and they were there you know it's it sounds very much like what what you're saying uh down in florida I believe that's where the Bet Sphere was found, and uh, it, it very much sounds exactly like what you were doing. And they found it uh, taking a walk in the uh, the Florida outdoors. Um, the son took it back to the house. It would respond to uh, if if he started playing the guitar, it would start creating some unusual hum. There would be times where the ball would start rolling mm -hmm. on its own. Um, yeah, that that's a little one about yay big, if I believe. Yeah, right? it was it was yeah. a little around the size of a bowling ball. Yeah, um, these would have been whatever nuke be would have been considerably bigger. Oh, um, okay. if if it was if it was three thousand feet, it would have been ten foot across, <clears throat> or oh, yeah, fifteen foot across, um, or maybe even a little bigger. And then, so we didn't know how high it was, but if it was a thousand feet, you know, it would be three or four feet across, something like that. And it was at least that high because it was, well, it was pretty high, man, because I never saw it like duck behind a cloud, but I never saw it. It was always in a clear spot, so I never did get to gauge how high it was. I never saw it in front of a cloud, um, you know, so. I'm going to jump way back to earlier when you were, mm -hmm. because I've been holding on to this question, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose it by the time we get to the end. You were talking about being in a trailer, and having mm -hmm. these things very close to you. Yeah. So um, in those days, I was living at a mine at a place called Paducci Flats, north of Black Canyon City, Arizona, just south of Bumblebee, Arizona, north of Phoenix, about 40 miles. And it's in the eastern flank of the Bradshaw Mountains. And there's only one road that goes back there. It takes about 45 minutes, a real rough road to drive in there. I had met this guy, Jerry Gray, who ended up being a mentor of mine. And we worked a... Uh, installing fiber optic cable and I was a boom truck operator and operating heavy equipment. And like I said, this is like 88, 89. And so, or maybe 89. And um, so Jerry came to my house one day and we had the book communion by Whitley Stryber sitting on the table and he just written it. And this is in the days before most of this stuff. And he looked at that book and he just fell against the wall and slid down the wall with big old eyes. He literally did. He just looked at the book, hit the wall and went down to the floor and just stared forward, not even at us. And um, he went out, man. And so just a few seconds, he came back or whatever, and he was freaked. 
And he told me, I've seen them before. I've seen them before. I know what them are. Them little mo-. And he was cussing them. I don't want to repeat what he was saying. But he was cussing them. He don't like them. And um, he had actually flashed a memory that he hadn't remembered since the 60s when he got home from Nam. And two of them things basically came in the house where he was at on his second or third day back. Um, after having to cross a frozen river and get washed down a river like an eighth of a mile and hike into their cabin and no one was there and went in, blah, blah, and lay on the couch and two of these things showed up in the room. And that's what he recounted to us. Well, try to make a long story short, he wouldn't go back home at the mine uh, without us going with him, period. That was it. And so plus, I'm thinking, we used to watch these green lights fall in that canyon all the time. And he was remembering that they were still coming, that he was having memories of them visiting him up there. So he wouldn't go back out there. And this is one of the toughest guys I've ever seen in my life, man. He hunts deer with a 357 pistol off the back of a mule. I mean, he's just hardcore. And um, But he wasn't going out there. So we went out there with him just to stay a few days. And we ended up staying out there running the mine, too, on the weekends and then working because it, it was just where we stayed. But one night when we were out there, they just had a fifth wheel camper, you know, in the top as the raised portion of the fifth wheel where the, the master bed would be. And then the ceilings up there, you have to crouch a little bit, you know, it's not super tall. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they have a little side area with the stairs going down that are real narrow and tight. And then you'd go by like the bathroom and it had one of those little flexible accordion doors on it. And if nobody's been in one in a camper, you know, you can hear a mouse run around in those things and they move and everything. And, and uh, my buddy at the time, uh, rich was asleep on the downstairs bunk and Jerry and I were sharing the bed in the top, you know, nothing squirrely. It was just the way you bunk down, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so, so I'm, I'm in bed on one side, he's in the other, and it was a full moon night. And this is just one of the times, but this is the time I, I was conscious and had to experience it all. And so, but I looked over, I heard a bunch of crap going on. I woke up, and I also had a gut ache real bad. And I looked over toward Jerry's window, and it's full moon. It's bright. You should just be able to see. It's not even an issue. We had little these little white frilly draped things there, and they light up. And I looked over there, man, it looked like snow on a TV set just like bright snow on a TV. I couldn't see anything looking right next to me. And I looked at the foot of the bed and I could make out the foot of the bed and the, the dresser little built in thing they had and everything. And our lines were sharp and it was kind of darker there, but I looked over toward Jerry. I couldn't see nothing. And then I could hear stuff going on there. And um, then I could hear pitter patter, you know, like you had puppies, three or four puppies on the linoleum floor. And so that's kind of what it sounded like. And I heard pitter patter and felt the movement of the trailer a little bit. I'm laying there thinking, what in the hell, Jerry, they're messing with Jerry right now. You know, it just knew immediately. And then all of a sudden I started cramping up really bad and I had some kind of food poisoning or something. And so it got, the pain got so bad. Well, at first I was just laying there, you know, I didn't want to move or anything. And then the pain got so bad. And feeling I had to go to the bathroom, but the pain got horrible. And I thought, literally, I looked at the foot of the bed, and now that there's also kind of a darker snow and I can blurry at the foot of the bed, and I can sense, see two dark parts in the blur going back and forth. I'm like, oh, shit, they're standing at the foot of my bed. But I'm really hurting bad. And um, so I, I actually just, the pain was so bad that I didn't care anymore. And what the hell were they going to do to me worse than this? It's like, it was bad. So I just said out loud, Hey man, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm getting up, get the 
you know, F out. I said, cuss. I said, get the F out of my way. Cause I'm coming down there to go to the bathroom and I don't want to run into any of you little bastards. And, um, cause I was scared to death of them. And, uh, and I did, I got up out of bed and you could hear the shuffling. It was so horrible because if you, if that stuff didn't exist, you could convince yourself it's okay. And it's your brain, but it just kept happening. And um, so I, I made my way down and opened that accordion door. It's like everything moved out of my way. And it felt like the place was full of them. And so I went into the restroom there and shut the accordion door. I used the restroom probably 45 minutes went by. I lit, we had a lantern, just like the old lanterns, where you turn the wick up and you light the lantern, you know, and put the glass down and it lights up. And so I'm in there and I lit that little lantern and I'm in there. And I hear a little pitter every once in a while, but almost nothing. And I'm convincing myself after like 35, 45 minutes that, okay, cool. You know, it had to be rowdy, this little hound pup, because Jerry hunted uh, lion, mountain lion. And he usually just ran him. He didn't shoot the mountain lion, but he trained, he trained lion dogs. And so they ran him all the time. Tough, tough guy. But we had a little pup that was in there occasionally named Rowdy. And I thought, man, Rich must have brought Rowdy in the damn trailer. You know, and we don't usually leave him in there at night, but that's must be what I'm hearing. I just kind of trying to convince myself because now my gut doesn't hurt anymore. Now I'm now I'm all there, you know. And um, boy, about the time I was gonna leave the restroom, all of a sudden the accordion door accordion door gets knocked into my knee, you know, because it's all cramped anyway, and it just gets knocked in, and I can see the accordion door get pushed at the probably four foot or more up and just get leaned in and something else go by and then lean back out and lean against my leg. And that was it. And I thought, Oh my God, you know, they're really in this trailer right now. And now I don't hurt anymore and all this. And after a while I had to just tell myself that you did it once, you know, you could do it again. So I banged on the accordion door, just boom, 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 and told him, I'm coming out of here and I'm going to bed. Get the hell out of my way. I don't want to run into you, you little bastards. Get out. And I did just like that. And I waited and the pitter patter stopped. And I, and I actually shut my eyes because my worst fear was opening that damn door and there'd be something just standing right there, man. I knew I would just, I wouldn't, I had melted down. And so I just shut my eyes and kept my arm on that wall and just, just followed the wall and to the little stairs is only about six feet. And then went up the little stairs and ducked down and I felt my bed around. I opened my eyes a little, just at my corner of the bed. Cause I did not want to see what was going on and, um, and got in bed. And I don't even really remember even laying down. I was out, boom, gone, done out and didn't wake up. Nothing. I just, as soon as I laid down, I was out. And, uh, the next morning though, Jerry was already awake. And I got up, and he was bitching and moaning, and oh, those little sons of bitches and little bastards! I can't. And I what, dude? Like, we got a little where it's like four thirty in the morning, and we're gonna make pancakes and beans before we go to work. And um, and it's like I said, it's like forty five minutes or an hour to drive out of there, and then we got to show up at like six. So it was like four thirty in the morning, and, and Jerry's just ranting, man, ranting, and I, and he because he didn't get any sleep, and he's exhausted. And I said, well, what do you mean? What, what happened? Tell me what happened. He said, those little bastards came and took me last night. And I said, well, I don't know, man. I, I tell you one thing. I believe you, Jerry, because I was in the room, and I had to go through there. And I woke up, dude, and you had shit all over your side of the bed. And I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if they took you anywhere or not, but they were damn sure there. And he says, no, no. He said, they took me out of there. He said, they made me fight bugs. And I said, what do you mean you fought bugs? He said, big bugs. 
they made me go fight big bugs. They gave me a big gun and I fought big bugs all night long. And I said, what in the world? I said, why would you? He said, I asked why, why they were doing it. He said, because they told me because I would. It's like, what in the hell? Now, I don't know if this is all played in his mind or not or what occurred, but there was physical remains like little feet print and all kinds of shit outside. Were they really? It, yeah, and they had a little, uh, like we have a heel on the back. They had a little bitty drop protrusion on the front. But other than that, they just looked like a really slender. Uh, I don't remember there being like a right or left. It just looked like like a little slender shoe or a little bit with a little depression in the front. Oh, so it, yeah. so they they weren't bare feet. They were no, shoe, yeah, they were barefoot, covered. Whatever they had was covered. Yeah, and um, you, I mean, you could have mistaken them for human prints, but it wasn't like they didn't have the right or left shape. They just had like a generic shape and with a little deep, like a little deeper section right where the toes would be. And then, um, and they weren't very big, you know, if I could show you, you know, compared to probably about the length of my hand, you know, something like that. And, um, but I absolutely believed him because I mean, I got up and experienced, they were stuff all around me and it wasn't no dog and there was a bunch of them in there, you know, and you just two and two, you know, makes four. So. What is yeah. that? What has that done to your your psyche? Uh, was was that the was that the first time that you'd had an experience with the entities no. actually being that close to you? No, because when I was a kid, I made my mom make muslin drapes so that even daylight wouldn't go through. Because at night on the second story, I was telling her all. I asked her why when I was five or six at night. I was telling her that they would come to my window, and be looking through the second story window. And it's just a wall. And it scared the shit out of me. So I had her make drapes that during the daytime, sunlight couldn't come through. That way I knew that light couldn't be going out my window and they couldn't see in. So, um, and like I said, well, yeah, I mean, when I was five or whatever, I came up missing for about four hours. And then um, my sister found me standing in a field and staring up and there was a UFO. And I can remember it clear as day, man. And it was round of course like disc shape but not it was if you put a flat a flat top and a flat bottom on my shape that's what it was like and then it had flat panels and it was turning because it was going flash 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 as it was just sitting there turning and it was probably 300 feet up something like that and i know it freaked her out she won't talk about it and um who knows from there but yeah it's, just, it's strange that you say five years old because it, not that i had an experience that i remember anyway but by the age of five, and you and I are within, a, I think, the same month of being 58, both yeah. in June, right? Um, I'm July, July 12th. Okay, so I'm a little older than you. Um, but at the age of five, and I've talked about this a million times on the show, I was already um, obsessed with UFOs. Yeah, same. And same. In fact, Even though I was scared to death of them. Oh, yeah. Every night was was miserable. Every time mm -hmm. I had to go to bed, I was scared shitless that they were going to be outside my bedroom window. Yeah, and I remember <clears> that <throat> I would feel light and be floating up, and it would uh, upset me, so I would slept with a beanbag on top of me. See, I never remember anything like I, that. But I, I would put weight on myself to keep myself underneath stuff because I didn't want to float away. I remember that being a fear. But I, you know, I, I there for a long time. I wondered how how long have I had this like obsession with UFOs, and I remember mm -hmm. at uh, the age of five, I was born in '65, 
1970, Chariots of the Gods came out. Mm-hmm. And when I saw yeah. the commercial for Chariots of the Gods, I begged and pleaded with my parents to take me to see it. And they would never yeah. take me. And one day when my parents took off for the day and my grandmother was babysitting me, I convinced her to take me to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got. I saw it in the theater when I was five. Yep. Yeah, Same. That's why by 75 with In Search Of came out with the Bigfoot stuff and all that. That's why we were, I was already into all understanding. By the time I was six years old, I was pissed off already because they weren't telling us what was out there. And I think that's, that's, that's why that's the stuff I was first experiencing, you know? So, and my mom told me that when, um, when they brought me home from the doctor, there was two, we lived on the side of a mountain. There was two red lights bouncing, dancing all over the side of the mountain above where our home was and stuff like that. And then when I was 11 months old, I remember this happening, but I don't remember getting to see it. Um, cause we were in a kitchen of this, they call it the ranch, but it's up in the mountains in New Mexico and at a town called, uh, uh, it's right next to, to a town called Mora. And, um, I can't remember the, Oh, Cleveland is the name of the little town. And, and, there, they had a ranch house there kind of on a hill overlooking a big valley. And it was all colonial Spanish or, or remnants of buildings and then the later Spanish buildings and, and, you know, and just the Spanish families that have occupied those valleys basically since then. And so it's very extremely rural. And, um, but they have beautiful little pastures and some homes and stuff. And, but from the ranch house, you could see down on most of that. And it was very open. And I remember, um, I remember seeing something, but I don't remember what they, what my mom tells me um, because there was a big light in the sky or it was outside. And it, I remember all the adults freaking out. I was getting washed in a, on a, in a wash tub on the kitchen table. That's where they bathed the kids. And, um, and I remember it was all, and then they carried us out to the front and this light star came down and then carried us back in because the star came all the way down and it came into the Valley and then it was a big craft and it landed in the Valley. And I remember that, um, I remember all the big hoopla of it going on, what was going on then. At 11 months old? Yeah, at 11 months. And eight months wow. is my first memory of four-wheeling in our Dodge Power Wagon and going around the yellow Volkswagon <laughs> on the side of a road. And I told my mom about that. She said, honey, you can't remember that. You were eight months old when we made that trip. So, you know. That's crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> That's so why I think you, a lot of the stuff is destiny, you know, but go on. What do you, um, you know, like the, the information that is within this paperwork <clears throat> and taking into consideration now what's come out over the past, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, the past few years, you've got, you've got Tom DeLong from uh, Blink-182 with his uh, To mm. the Stars Academy. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you've got Luis Elizondo, who, when you listen to him, I, you know, when I first started hearing him, I was really excited. And then the more I've heard him, <clears throat> excuse me, there's something weird about him. And, you know, he leaves like breadcrumbs for people to, to, to follow these trails. And he'll, he'll say some things that are very, very strange. Like you, you kind of have, it's almost like you're having to break the code with him. And then you've got, you know, the, the more recent stuff with David Grush coming out and you've got, 
the the Stephen Greer side of things where um, these things are wonderful and they're peaceful and they've got technology that would make our world and our lives so much better and you know in just free energy and and all this stuff and then you've got the military side of it the uh, military industrial complex side of it that says all this stuff is a natural a national threat and uh you know everything is bad and we should be afraid and Mm -hmm. you know the stuff that you were privy to where where does that fall into this hodgepodge of you know information because there's so many this this disclosure that's happening has so many different odd components to it and they don't all line up you know and we've got most recently at the uh um at Stephen Greer's latest uh event um one US military guy um in the in the jungles i forget uh doing some kind of humanitarian work after a um a tsunami or something him and his unit are walking through the woods and they come across this uh this black craft that is hovering over the ground they're approached by another military group that appears to be uh, mm-hmm. U.S. military, only dressed out in black, um, using very similar terminology from, you know, modern-day military that would be the same as what these guys had gone through during training. And they're loading, they're loading people in crates <laughs> into these things, and then it zooms off and it takes off. You know, so we've, we've got now the introduction of human trafficking, which... Oddly enough, lines up with, you know, what you were talking about as far as being a food source, for God's sakes. You know, we got... Well, not just for them, but there's people eating people, too. So, you know, where do you go from there? And then, you know, you've got the the missing 411. Say what you want about Dave Polites. Um, You know, there's apparently some things in his background that maybe don't shine as brightly as they should. But... In related in relation to the missing persons stuff, I think he's done a pretty good job of um, excellent job of of you know putting that out where people can get a hold of it and, and ingest yeah. that information. Yeah. Um, you know, it's starting to sound it's starting to sound like all these things. You know, I doubt that these people are all coming up missing because of Bigfoot. Uh, it seems more likely that these things are all people are coming up missing because there's there's some kind of a an agenda. Yeah, well, there's a good chance that basically the nefarious beings that we're dealing with may not be extraterrestrial. They may be from here, be ultra terrestrial, live within our planet, um, behind the shadows of society, and been here the whole time. And the beings coming from out there may be the greatest thing since apple pie, because like we said, they're not just a they. There's these guys and these guys and these guys and these guys and these guys. And so everybody's got a different sensibility about how you're going to approach human. The common denominator that I seem to be or seem to see over and over is this blue rock is a pretty special place. Um, It's a beautiful world where you can get out of your spaceship and walk on the beach if you're just, you know, you're used to these type of pressures and temperatures or whatever. Um, But there's just beautiful worlds like this you know it's not oceans of ammonia and 900 degrees are going to be similar to earth like this and they're they're few and far between and 
it's really not just ours to mess up. It's ours because we have this little tiny viewpoint and say, well, we live on the earth. It's our earth. But, well, you know, we live in a solar system and might share that. We might share the earth. We might share it within the galaxy. Um, so we might share com- it dimensionally. Right. So the, the, the common factor seems to be, though, this isn't a biosphere. And the biosphere is pretty damn important. And that, and if you want to push something to stepping in, you threaten the biosphere, and then you're going to see basically action probably from races that would never do anything other in any other way, because it's got value. Life is life is precious, and life is rare. So, um, protecting an entire biosphere of life versus a few jerks, you know, that's I think that's that's where something would step in that they would be coming and saying, Oh, well, these guys from out here are horrible and evil. And then they're a threat to us. Well, they might be if we're a threat to the biosphere um, and every animal and life on it. Right. So, cause we could wreck it. We could actually destroy it. We wouldn't support life um, that potentially exists. So, you know, not, they wouldn't normally be a threat to us, but look what we're doing. We're threatening something that's beyond us. So, and then I think all the above, as far as information goes, <clears throat> every interested party, everybody and everyone's positioning right now. That's why it, it seems like we just went into a stall almost, um, even though information's coming out and all this other stuff, it's just like, it just comes out and hits a wall yep. and then they have to pick and pick and pick through it all um, to take it anywhere. Well, this is really positioning. This is time for all those individuals to have leverage and have security and do all this. And the ground just got pulled out beneath them. Um, you know, we've had the technologies to do what we're doing for decades and decades. I think in 52 was the anti-gravitational stuff, which actually isn't. It's just time dilation, is it? So you just make a little difference in time and you're going to move in space. That's just the way it works. So there's no propulsion. There's no power source. There's no gravity. If I could borrow, if I have um, one electron and I can borrow it, from 15 minutes from now, I could have infinite electrons. All I needed was one. Um, you don't need a source for the energy. It just falls out of the id um, in that sense because it's coming. It's all time manipulation. And this is what they've danced around. The secret to doing what they're doing is not complex. It's actually easy. It just takes them the understanding of it to realize what it is. And once they get, once anyone gains that, then they became a threat and a danger. So you can, that's how I broke even the monuments in the ancient secret code. It's all based on that same, those forms that are physical forms that have a chance to change and alter reality. And they're the same thing. So like in a deck of cards, you have the heart and the spade and the club and the diamond. All those are actually exact. If you take the outlines of them, they all fit on one template. And it explain the template explains the relationship between a circle and a square, and that is how you. That's the the, the relationship between time and the physical reality, and how to manif- how to manipulate that. So, um, the physical reality would be the square, and the circle would be the time, and because they're directly relative, they're, that's what the theory of relativity really is. Like, I'm going to say this, and I can. Oh, it's, I'll get called out for it. Doesn't matter. So people and even the, the most advanced physicists are not listening when someone tells them something. So when Einstein says you can only travel 99.9999999 speed of light, you can never actually go the speed of light because your mass becomes infinite. True. But you're 
mass relative to the surroundings becomes less as you accelerate. So at the infinite point, you actually have no mass relative to your surrounding. So that's what relativity is. So if you, if a jet flies by you 10 feet over your head, if you were insulated from the shock wave, you were insulated from the sound and just staring straight up through a tube, a foot in diameter, and a jet flew, you'd never know it flew by. You'd never know because it doesn't exist in that time, in that space for a long enough duration of time for you to perceive it. Well, the same thing exists when anything travels. If it travels a certain speed, it has no time to occupy the space in between two points. That's what a wormhole is. We have to envision folding of paper. And I hear physicists say this shit all the time. Oh, you fold the paper and it goes between here. No, nothing, nothing, zero, nothing like that at all. A wormhole isn't a structure at all. It's an absence of relative time space because you're not relative to it anymore. You went through it so fast you didn't occupy any space in between the two. And that's what Einstein's saying. So you can only travel 99 point because you're not traveling anymore. Right. So all the physicists say that's the barrier. Einstein's wrong. The new physics, quantum physics says you could surpass that. You would be in a different dimensional quality. Exactly. You wouldn't be traveling in this dimension anymore. You just simply go from point A to point B without traveling. Einstein told us that, but people don't understand what he's trying to tell everyone, what he's trying to relate to you. That in itself is the secret to the whole process because you're not pushing anything. You're not shoving anything about the rocket engine. You're not pushing anything. You're not prying it. Those are the, the like Spain's way of just leveraging the universe to, to move through it and fight your whole way through. With Scharberger looking at the fish, even a dead fish sitting in a current would still slightly go forward just because. Um, those eddies are the same thing time does. It can propel you as well as, as everything else. So you can imagine basically all you got to do is create a little less time above you and you'll move upward because there's less space above you. Um, and, and so it, that's how they change position in time space without any G forces or anything else. Cause they're not relative to that. They're not moving. They're not traveling. Um, it's not, and it's not even complicated and the way it, you make it work is not that complicated either. So most people have achieved, let's say if you had an engine and you were going to make an engine, you'd call it something like a time pump because that's what it does. It would pump through time to cause some form of a dilation. Well, we people have built half the engine they've done it thousands of times but they don't understand the relationship of how that acts in the environment so you can have a time dilation you could slip a watch through it and if you were wearing the watch you'd never see the dilation and you'd only see it if witnessing it from the outside how it's relative to you passing by and they do these tests if you're in orbit time goes by at a different rate in orbit than it does on the surface of the earth because of the relative nature. It's really not any different for either, for either party. Um, although one will experience a different duration if they're in that other dilation for long enough. Correct. So it's the exact same thing. They're just changing time relative to the surroundings. So the craft operates the same way. Bees, now, when the first fall of the Soviet Union, you could actually find videos that got stuck on YouTube right away um, when, when a bunch of the government documentation got out there that showed you how it works. And they would use a bee or a beetle, for example, and that they generate a negative ion, uh, swirling sense of negative ions below the wing shell. 
And what this does is, is in relationship to above the wing shell, it makes a different, uh, different dilation in time space because we know that magnetic fields and gravity can affect time. Right. So they know this by looking at stars and things, you know, it's, it's time is not a constant. And, and so it's affected by gravity. It's affected by electrons, affected by magnetic fields, but you always go right back into time again, but it doesn't matter. It's always fluid that way. So in order to have a change in it, you have to create an area where there's a cavitation event. Or uh, uh, like if you pass your hand in water extremely fast, you'll get some bubbles behind it. Well, those are cavitative bubbles. There's no bubble there. Um, that's not a bubble. It looks like a bubble. Um, but you're just ripping open the water. Well, you could think as time in the fabric of space as a constant like water. And if you pass certain things that interfere with it through it, you can make a cavitative bubble. Well, inside that cavitative bubble, there's no water, just like there's no, or no time, just like there's no water. So that's the cavitative bubble that they're talking about. What it is, is that's the zero point. So what they, the basis to what they call zero point energy. So you are not relative to your surroundings. You're insulated completely. And then you also at that point have infinite potential because you can begin to resonate a feedback loop of that time of that space you're incorporated in. And so you can have something be infinite next to you or not, no time at all. So in that, in essence, you could like, like Tesla said, um, it was, it was possible to burn a lump, put a lump of coal in a device and burn it almost eternally and get heat from it the whole time without consuming the coal. So, because in relative to us, we would still get heat from it, but relative to us, the coal is is burning for a thousand years. Relative to itself, it's burning for 15 minutes, if you could kind of imagine that. Um, and that's his whole basis for making the car that ran off, no, a wireless car that ran off no energy, um, things like that. So he's just manipulating that time kernel. And so with people building these rotating toroid or toroidal engines and Tauruses and thinking that they're going to, they, they, they understand that they can pump time through this device. They understand that there is a change there, but it goes right back to normal because it flows right back out in the time space again. But if you make two of those opposing, so if I have two wheels turning like this, now like particle physics says what you do to one particle, it's exact copy, um, it'll respond to it even on the other side of the universe instantly with no time in between the two. So it's same thing. If you take two of the like same like particles in relationship to each other and do this, nothing happens. Because relative to time space, they're doing exactly the same motion. But if you take one and flip it 180 and put it like this now and do this, are they turning opposite directions? They're not. They're turning the same way, but I flipped it over now because it's, its relationship to the universe is 180 degrees out. So is its relationship to time space. Even though it's the same particle, the same thing doing the same thing. So when we think about that, that's the yin and yang in all actuality. That's the design of the yin and yang are these two opposing fields. And they're discussed through all of the, the legends and stories and myth and formulas and things throughout all the history and incorporated into all the tales are the two halves of the same thing, but they're opposites. But how can you have the same thing be opposite? 
And the yin and yang is one form, a circle. It's one form right. with two opposites doing the same thing, but they're opposite, but they're the same form. So to understand that you create by doing a counter rotation of these same field engines these guys are building and opposing them to one another, they can no longer just flow through time space. And they are actually winding themselves different um, like like particle physics, they should try to do the same thing, and you're ripping them apart, and that creates your cavitative bubble, and that's your zero point in between them, and that's what you stretch, and you stretch the zero point out by manipulating that field, and then you're inside of basically your time bubble, and then if you make a slight difference between half versus the other half, you're going to move out of here like there's no tomorrow, um, because you're as long as they're doing exactly the same thing, you're going to be sitting in time space. Stay more stable than a planet, um, just right there. And no matter what angle you are, that's why they move around there. Do they do this? It could be at an angle or whatever. It doesn't matter. They're not gravity, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just their placement in the universe that's changing. They're moving over ten feet in the universe, so not in relationship to the air, the planet, gravity, or anything else, but to the entire fabric of time space. They're locked. So all you have to do is cause a slight difference between top and bottom, and you move through the time space. And that's all they're doing. It's just a slight dilation. Yeah, simple stuff. Well, if you think, yeah. I mean, that, I'm, think I'm not going to lie. Is. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's a little over my pay grade there. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I have seen many of the things that you, you just described, um, and I have a... A rough grasp of it um mm -hmm. you know what yeah and that's what the swastika is if you were to energize two copper swastikas and spin them you're going to have effect on time um period Be and it's because if you spin a spiral it's going to kick off something like a torus that's what happens so if you spin a flat plane and of electrical nature, a torus of time forms above it. And they, they know this, but it's they, you can't have an effect from it because what you put into it is what directly relative to what you get out. There's no gain. Um, you can't gain anything. And so, but, uh, you know, a feedlock, uh, a, a phase lock loop or resonant loop. Okay, so you can imagine a microphone and a speaker and you get feedback. That's called undesired interference, but the gain is actually higher than the power you're putting in to the point it'll burn stuff up and blow it apart. Right. But where does the gain come from? The gain is actually only described as undesired interference. In, in, in electrical theory, it's not actually even <laughs> described as gain, and it's never described where it comes from, where the amplitude, because it goes exponentially until something gives. So you break a glass by... By, by a resonant frequency with a glass, and then the, 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 the atoms will just, the molecules will just fly apart. So you're breaking the, the, the molecular bond within that material. Do you know what kind of forces it takes to do that? Well, think about it, really. It's not the sound wave isn't shaking it till it flies apart or anything like that. It's actually coming apart at the molecular structure based on the harmonic resonance. It cannot hold itself together anymore. That's what's happening with this thing like Tesla, and that's what happens with zero-point stuff and how you gain infinite amounts of energy is you create a phase-lock loop of time. 
that's it. And so it's, we do it all the time. We experience things, resonant uh, waveforms all the time. And that's why, you know, an earthquake can just gain and gain and gain and gain an amplitude depending on, on the phase and how that, how that comes back to the original hit. Um, that's the same thing as a tuning fork or anything else, you know, so. Interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, and that's why so, that's why it's really so secret because the UFOs they don't care about that they don't care what they're doing to the people they don't care what they're doing to the planet they don't care about any of that what they don't want you to know is that you could probably build something in your garage that makes you untouchable without limitation infinite power infinite ability to go anywhere you want to and the way they're talking about a lot of this stuff and how it relates to us is using by time itself and who we are in time space is an identity. So um, curling photography helps prove this. You can cut a leaf in half, put it under curling photography and still, still see the ghost side of the leaf. What is there channeling energy at that point? Nothing. Only it's identity in time space is there channeling energy. And we have an identity in time space too. And to heal or completely make a person new, well, you just reach into a different, portion of yourself in time space if we can achieve teleportation we're already doing this and we know they've already done teleportation because that's what that is you're not occupying time between a and b and you're not disassembling anyone into a computer program or vaporizing them with a laser or anything like that whatsoever all you're doing is creating a dilation between two points it's interesting that you bring up the grillian photography because i've and I've never looked if anybody's ever done it, but it'd be interesting. Um, people who have had amputee, you know, amputations. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Mm-hmm. I wonder if yeah. that that effect, yeah, um, happens with that as well. It would make sense that it would. Yeah, and even on a leaf, it's less lit up, and you definitely see the dividing line where it's missing. But just. The simple fact that it shows a ghost area where the leaf used to be, there's nothing there to create that. Like you can't make the electrons bend a corner. So in order to have the shape of the leaf and be congested at different points, they're actually moving and flowing as if there's something solid there and there's nothing there anymore. So it's like the memory of it is enough. It's the ID because the ID, the leaf still exists in time space. It's there the whole time. It's always there and it's never there. So you can imagine that. So to me, that's why the sun, that's why a sun works is it's a leak down of energy through time space. Um, That's why a wing works in atmosphere because it takes longer for the air to go over the top surface than the bottom surface creates a dilation between the two regions and you get lift. It works the same. To me, it's the same as time. It's not lift, it's time. There's a difference. There's a dilation, a ratio between two things in time on the same object two different relationships relative to the environment you get a change and that's that's what they're hiding that from the people this is a secret they're hiding because it's right there it's not something difficult to get to it's extremely obtainable if someone figures out the basis of it and you know that's what i've seen that's why it's in all these ancient forms and um, you know, sand paintings and mandalas and, and all this stuff still all have the same forms. You can still draw the same line on the same template. And that's the math to physically manipulating this mess. So what is the, what is the plan for this 
these papers that you have moving forward? Well, I've already done a reading. Um, you can find it on our YouTube channel. Uh, the Krill Papers, part one, basically. Um, and I was just going to continue and go on from there. And, uh, you know, they, what they, because they go into so, so many different aspects of this related enigma. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's basically a lot of histories, histories of the projects, histories of the beings of our interaction with the beings with us and the military and how things went with that, um, information about which ones have been visiting us, um, how their world's perceived and how it implicates or the implications on our world. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do more and read these out. What I was truly hoping for was a larger audience or presence because just like the Bigfoot stuff, man, I've a lot of my work and conclusions are ours have been flipped around and reinterpreted by the pros and dissuade and distract and move people down the wrong avenues. And we see it happening all the time because we don't have the audiences that the mouthpieces have. So they're the ones everyone gets to listen to, but they're not repeating this stuff verbatim. They're trying to put their own twist in it, involve themselves in it and put their own theory behind it. Then they introduce it. And so what we're trying to do, we really wanted to do before all this information came out was have a vehicle big enough to plow it forward to the people directly from the source, not interpreted by anybody else who wants to put themselves in the middle of it or change the information before it gets to you. So is there anyone in the public eye, as far as the disclosure effort that's going on that you would trust to, to give this to? And I guess the, the, the second part of that question is you not being the only person that had been given this information. Has anybody else taken this and had any of it published or put out for? I don't know. I, I actually saw, um, I tried to do a search on the Krill papers and I saw like excerpt pages, but I never saw this packet. Um, you know, I mean, not all of it, you know, it's, and so I'm, I don't know. Who else ended up with what? Did we all end up with the same packet of information? Because it goes beyond William Cooper. Most of the writings I have are by a, by a pseudonym called O.H. Krill. And that's why they're actually called the Krill Papers. Krill was the name of the EBE that they had in captivity as well. But this is a uh, an informant who's by the name O.H. Krill. Um, William Cooper identified and met this person and the last time he saw him was in 76 validated every single thing that's in here. And so that's what, that's why that William Cooper, the whole thing about it is this information is what William Cooper witnessed himself, but it's from an operative named Krill. Um, so I don't know who received what, did they get stuff that I don't have? My, mine is continuous, you know, um, it goes through the line. It's all numbered. Um, and everything, I'm not missing anything in my series anyway, but I have no idea if this was printed off for me, if that's the way it was numbered. So you were never made aware of who else was uh, to no. be a caretaker mm. of this? Nope. Nope. Not at all. No, sir. And I still get run into by groups every once in a while or contacted and uh, let me know that, hey, we're of that same cluster from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. How's it going? And then they leave and never see them again. And I've had that quite a bit of times, really. So, 
never know. Yeah. And for as much as I'm messed with, I also get protected. So that they never ever step up and say, "Hi, my, my name's so and so. How you doing?" I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you said that because it that has been a thought of mine throughout all of our conversations. Um, as much as you talk about getting messed with, there does seem to be, and and you've never said it before, uh, at least to me, there does mm-hmm. seem to be some level of protection that yeah you, that you get too yeah i mean because I've, I've done some pretty squirrely stuff so and i've always tried to remain on the right moral and ethical side and then um you know with the kind of work and the gravity and the size of the stuff we've done you know we always ended up with guys from three later agencies on the team and you kind of get an idea they are anyway but who cares i'll go work them doesn't bother me any they're going to be around anyway um but there's always an air of that and something going on to where they know almost like they more know more about what I'm doing than I know about what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like they already know stuff about me. I don't know yet. And if that doesn't make any sense, it's just, that's how it feels like why in the world, you know, are you guys here doing this? It's not just because, Oh, I ran into this thing. Cause I'm not even doing that stuff. They've always remained there in spite of what I'm working on. You know what I mean? Whether it's Bigfoot or whether it's, whatever there's that there's always a contact still reaching out, touching base and, and stuff. Of course, you know, at the same time I could, if I lost my job and didn't have any food, you know, hell they'd let my maybe go homeless and starve to death. You know, they wouldn't lift a finger. I guarantee you nothing socially or anything, nothing, zero. But when there's come times in real big stuff, it's hit the fan and, and, and things have gone on on levels that are way up. There's there's always been an air, interfering arm sweep in, knock everybody's dick in the dirt, and pull me out of there. Boom, and then I'm all sitting there scot free. It's like what the hell just happened? You know, I've had I've had law enforcement be my best friends, and I've had law enforcement tell me I'm going to get you. I'm going to find out what you are. I don't know what you are, but I'm going to get you after they run me because such weird crap comes back. And um, or no crap comes back, you know, like uh, CYFD, we just had to get approved for foster parents. They do a very in-depth background check, a couple of them. And the lady came back. She was all weirded out. She said, I don't get it. You don't have anything. Nothing. Nothing comes back. Nothing. Nobody has nothing. You have nothing. We couldn't get anything on you at all. I said, well, that's a good thing. You know, that's a great thing. There's nothing bad. She goes, I mean, nothing. (laughs) So wigged her out, you know, whatever. So, yeah, there's... A bigger game being played. I'm being. I'm in the middle of it. Some to some degree, unknowingly and un, unnotified. You used the B word, Bigfoot. Yeah. Is there? Is there anything that leads you to believe that there's any connection with any of this type of stuff to do with Bigfoot? Because. I've I've never personally bought into it, but there are a number of people out there who kind of buy into the whole, you know, Bigfoot is is the alien watchdog or, you know, they're uh, they're put here by them. Is there anything that you've ever run into that you would say that there's some sort of correlation? Um, I think that there's a correlation is in as much at least as there is with ETs and other things. So. I use this example to people when you like they see Bigfoot tracks disappear in a snowy field and think, well, they were beamed up, walked into a portal, whatever. But 
and then think that the Bigfoot either has an ability or a deal with aliens, right? Um, but we found deer prints that disappeared in open field, cow prints that disappeared in open field, human prints of missing people that disappeared in an open snowy field. Did that person, did the cow, did the deer have a deal with aliens? Did they have the ability to walk through a portal? And it's like, well, probably not. Probably the cow probably doesn't know what a portal is. And why would he care? Why would the aliens care to hang out with a cow? But it happens to them too. Now people see Bigfoot and beams of lights both below ships. People see people in beams of lights below ships. They see cattle in beams of lights below ships. Does that mean they have a con the people in the cattle have a conscious deal with the aliens? Or are we all victims of the same phenomena? All right. That's what seems to be more likely to me is that Bigfoot, as well as humans, as well as other things, are all on the receiving end of the of this phenomenon. Um and could be doing the same thing. They see humans and aliens in cooperation on black ops projects and on at military installations. Why wouldn't you have an alien make a deal with a Bigfoot um, and be in cooperation as well? And, or potentially with us um, and be in cooperation as well as and aliens in cooperation as well. <laughs> Maybe the craft is our craft and they're in cooperation with us. I mean, so it's just, if, if the possibility exists, it's probably gone on to some level at one level or another. And that's what I, people tend to just put something in a bracket. It's comfortable. I can taste it. I can smell it. I can see it right here in this box. That's where I'm going to put it. Hardly anything fits in a box, man. Um, you know, nothing in reality really fits in a box. There's always uh, an exception to the rule, so to speak. Grab that cat, will you, please? Thank you. Weird cat. Anyway, um, but yeah, so uh, so thinking about it that way, it's, it's like, I think that there's, it's much more in-depth than anybody would realize. So when we look at ancient panels, we have glyph panels that are painted red okra that are ochre that have... Um, a Native American shaman, a Bigfoot, and an alien all in the same panel. And and they're each shown in a descriptive manner for the interaction. Like there's a, a feature in the rock that looks like a crack, and the alien's shown coming out of this crack. And across from it is a shaman with his authority as a, his big feathered standard and a shield. And then you have uh, the Bigfoot character on the side of the mountain with eyes big like this sitting like um, sitting on his butt with his legs up like this and his hands up in the air like this, all freaked out by the scene apparently going on below him. And then we also have often sculpted monumented heads at these sites. And many times there'll be a head of a native or a human, head of a Bigfoot and the head of an alien all on the same site near the entrances to these really ancient underground places. Um, and so there was obviously some form or another of something going on between those three. Um, but they still, it looks like the alien is the odd man out, so to speak. Like the native and the Bigfoot are both here, both part of this environment and reality. And here comes a little gray guy. And that's kind of how it's always done. And it's almost like the gray guy is in charge or the instructor or something above and beyond the normal uh, people or whatever. So, Robert, it is always 
a pleasure talking to you. And it is always a mind-blowing conversation. Do me a favor. Let everybody yeah. know what they can expect to hear from you uh, in about a month at Bigfoot and Brews. What are, what, are they, what are the people in store for with your presentation? Well, truth is best as I know it. Um, so I'm, you're going to be the guy that leads me to give to the people whatever the hell you draw me toward, right? Because you know how it is just like now. We didn't discuss what we were going to talk about. And I give you the freedom to start picking up stones, man. Look what's under them. I'll, yeah. I'll give you honest right out the window. And and so that's what they're going to get. It's authenticity. Um, they're not going to get something that's rehearsed, pre-planned. Um, they're going to get authenticity. And this goes in the directions where you and they choose it to go. And I'll, I'll fill in the gap and pour out as much as we can during that process. Um, naturally, I'll, I'll bring things. Um, to show and discuss, you know, as always, Bigfoot related, whatever. But, um, but yeah, we're here, you know, we're here for the truth and just to relate what we've learned, not, not what we're surmising because everyone does that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I respect every author there is because I wouldn't be half the place without good authors and, and documentarians. Um, but at the same time, people usually listen to the authors and people discussing other people's work and then uh, surmising and, and forming hypotheses and potential conclusions based on that. And what I want to bring to the table is here's what we experienced on the honest truth about that experience without any embellishment, um, without holding anything back um, and, and that. So just, I guess, we could deliver anything. It's going to be authenticity and, um, and probably truths that you've not heard anywhere else. Well, you know, I've been privy to your, uh, to your live, um, presentation in the past. And, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dote on it like I did the last time because I don't want any of this video to come up missing. They'll shut us down. Right? Um, but I, I, I do encourage any of you listening that have any interest in the topic of Bigfoot and Sasquatch. Um, yeah, this, I am a little more animated and it flows out differently when I'm doing a presentation. It's probably quite a bit different than this. Oh, it definitely um, does. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but the, the, the range of, of information that you'll get, um, like, you know, deep dives into the diet and, uh, mm -hmm things like that were for me um, the first time I heard you were were really one of the things that man this guy is he's doing work <laughs> he, he is he's doing a lot of work you know I mean you're, you're breaking down the diet you're breaking down so many things that we don't get when we just hear the same people the same faces the same spokespersons for the uh, community uh, talking about the structure of the foot, right, and the prints and the the whoops and the tree knocks and you know those those things are all still wonderfully interesting, 
Um, well, you know, the the reality of what they are and who they are and all that is what I'm interested in and not interested in what I think about them or anything else. I just want to get to know them and get to experience them and see what they are and just get answers to the, to the questions. That's it. So it comes as it comes. And I think that may, might make a difference. And that's why we learn what we learn um, because I'm not coloring anything. I don't, you know, I'm fine with just going out there and sitting down under a log or spending two hours looking at just one scrape or a scratch and just, you know, letting it happen and letting it be what it is and not coloring anything. So that my, my whole job I figure is just to bring it to you guys through experience and that's it. Again, my guest has been Robert Kreider of Kreider Exploration. He is going to be the lead speaker at this year's Bigfoot and Brews in Dwajak, Michigan on September 8th. I'm sorry. September 9th. He will also be involved in the VIP dinner the night before on September 8th. That will be held at the same venue and tickets are available. So check the show notes, get your tickets for it. This man is, uh, he's a presenter. He, he will bring to you information that you have not heard before and not ever thought about before. It is a, uh, and, and he threatens that, uh, that it could be very much uh, close to a three-hour experience. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we have no problem delivering a three-hour presentation, and I've never had anyone get up and walk out yet. So. Well, I can, I can guarantee you the way that this place is, uh, this, this event is designed, it is not designed to allow anybody to get up and walk away. <laughs> the food is delivered to your table. The beer and the drinks are... Uh, available mere feet away. Nobody leaves the speaker area during any of it. So it, it was it was an amazing time last year. I'm looking forward to it again. And uh, I couldn't think of better people to have coming to speak. So, well, I couldn't think of anybody better to be interviewing me. I really appreciate it, Eric. Talking to you is so comfortable, and and you have a great way of of prying open a lot of information with very little lever. And, and I like that. You're very good at what you do and I appreciate it. And I appreciate the consideration and the attention you've given and, and the help in getting some of this truth out there. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate the kind words. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Mr. Robert Kreider. I suggest you uh, head over to Kreider KX Kreider exploration on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe and, uh, Give this guy's content some look because there is yeah. a lot of really good stuff out there. And if you guys want, um, we'll all be on our chat for a little while here in closure to answer some of the questions. So you guys are welcome to go over to the KX Credit Exploration channel and look up this live stream still going on. And if you have a question or whatever, you want to throw it out, you're welcome to. And I'll be on there for a little bit. So, Alrighty, sir. Can't wait right. to see you in about a month. Yeah, it's going to be great, Eric. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I'll see you, buddy.